Let's pray. Father, it's good to be in your house once again with your people. As we have sung your praises and gloried in you, Father, we give you praise and thanksgiving because you are worthy of it. You are our Savior, you are our Master, and we have learned these things in the Gospel of John in fresh and invigorating ways that have stirred our souls to be more faithful to you, to be more faithful in witness to others, to be more faithful in the pursuit of holiness and joy in Christ. And I pray now, Father, as we conclude the Gospel of John today, may you be glorified in us as we take what we have learned and apply it to our lives and be more of what you want us to be, sharper instruments in your hand to change the world and build your church. And oh, Father, we pray all of this to your great glory and to our own, our own great joy. And we do it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tomorrow, Pastor Brent Osterberg from the um, Mansfield Church Plant, for those of you who are new, um, my young associate is down in um, Mansfield, and he has his own church now, but he and I, tomorrow afternoon, will be heading out on a trip to Central Asia where we'll have the opportunity to preach in three major countries in the former Soviet Union. I've been on these trips before, and every time I go, I have kind of the same experience, roughly. It's always a long journey. It's always exhausting, and it seems like every few days we're changing time zones. Kazakhstan, for example, is exactly 12 time zones away, so exactly on the other side of the planet. Often the journey is exhausting and long, and the food is strange to us. The fellowship is always sweet, despite the language barriers. And the journey ends up always bearing much fruit for the glory of God and our own personal joy. Along the way, we seek to administer comfort and instruction of the scriptures as we meet people who have suffered more than we have ever dreamed of. People who have persevered better, perhaps, than we ever have. People who love Christ more than we do. And it's always a humbling and refreshing experience, despite the difficult demands. And I tell you not, that not simply to draw attention to our trip, but to make a parallel here. Because at the same time I'm preparing for that journey, as a church we find ourselves finishing a different journey, and a long one. Amen? <laughs> um. More than three and a half years ago, we set out on the long road that led us through the Gospel of John. From the very beginning, we saw that the truths we were to encounter were greater than we had imagined. The oceans that we came across, the oceans of truth, were deeper than we ever imagined. And we were introduced to the reality that Jesus Christ is the eternal Word, He is the creator of all things. Everything that has come into being came into being by him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. 
We were amazed to read that this word, this creative person, the word, became flesh. He chose to become a man, a real human being, so that he could represent us before the Father, so that we, in turn, could be saved. Along the way, we met people, some who desired to know Christ as we know him, and others who love, whose love for him exceeds our own. Think Mary, Magdalene, and others. On the other hand, there were many who would never put their faith in Jesus. In fact, most. And some who hated him so much that they demanded and succeeded in bringing unjust condemnation to him until finally he was executed through the tortures of a Roman cross. But all along the way, we were reminded repeatedly that his death was no more accidental than his birth. Everything was planned out exactly from before the creation of the world. Jesus came to earth on a mission. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to reveal God's grace, to show us the Father, to call us to repentance and to die in our place. And then when his mission was complete, he rose again from the dead to prove once and for all that he is indeed the promised Christ, the Son of God, and that whoever believes in him will have eternal life in his name. I confess that this has been a longer journey than I anticipated it to be. As I read through S. Lewis Johnson's final sermon on the Gospel of John yesterday, a couple days ago, he was um, confessing to his church that it took him longer than he thought, and it was his second time through, and nearly a hundred sermons. For us, perhaps, because of the weakness of this preacher, we reached the end of our journey at 121 sermons. (laughs) And I don't know about you, but I confess that as I prepare to step away from this gospel, there is a sense within me that I just don't want it to end. Listening to John MacArthur one day, and he said, after all the preaching, some Old Testament, mostly New Testament, finally finished the New Testament, he went to his church body and said, well, what do you want to do next? And they said, can we go back to John? Can we do John again? He's still doing that. You talk about slow. <laughs> he started before I did, and I was shocked when uh, we were out in California and realized that uh, he was in chapter 14 or something like that. <laughs> so, come on, John. <laughs> um, I can't help but think, however, that after all of this, we have a better church for being long in the book of John and meditating week after week after week on the glory of Christ. And if I seem to have some emotion in all of this this morning, it's because I, more than you, perhaps, have delighted in this study because I only have one hour to tell you the things that I learn and that's never, ever enough, including this morning. However, having said all of this, 
We're not quite finished, so turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 21, and we'll look at this final passage together. Context, first of all, as you know, this passage is primarily about the restoration of Peter to his apostolic ministry. It's not the first time we've seen hints that Jesus would restore Peter to the ministry after he three times denied him just a week earlier. For example, we saw a hint of this when the angel at the empty tomb in Mark 16, when the women came, the angels said to the women, go and tell the disciples and Peter, this is explicit instruction from Jesus, tell the disciples and Peter that I'm going before you to Galilee and you're to meet me there. Jesus singled out Peter. And we know as well that, um, that Jesus met with Peter on Easter Day, a private meeting. We don't know anything about it except the text says, and he's, he met or revealed himself to Peter. We might call these the um, private restorations of Peter. But here, here we have the public restoration of Jesus in chapter 21. There's some interesting parallels that we can observe, and, and, um, and they encourage us to see this as Peter's restoration. I mean, it, it, there is no title here. Jesus doesn't say, okay, the next thing I'm going to do is restore Peter. And you have to kind of ferret that out and, and ask yourself, what is Jesus doing here? Why did he appear again? What is he doing with Peter? And remember, he asked him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. What was that all about? But there's some interesting parallels that help us ferret that out. For example, Jesus provided back in Luke chapter 5, all the way back in the beginning in Luke's gospel, Jesus provided a great catch of fish right before he chose Peter to be his disciple. And then here again in chapter 21, Jesus provides a great catch of fish before he restores Peter to the ministry. Furthermore, Peter denied the Lord three times. And just an almost incidental comment in chapter 18, verse 18, he denied Jesus vehemently, and John says it was before a charcoal fire. And you read that and you go, big deal, right? Keep reading. You come to chapter 21, and, and John explicitly says that when They pulled the fish up on shore, and Jesus says, bring some of them. I've already made breakfast for you. Come and sit with me beside the charcoal fire. And we have the three denials around a charcoal fire and three affirmations of his love and loyalty to Christ. And you say, well, they seem really small. Well, it seems evident to me that it was John's purpose that we would make these connections and realize that Jesus was reinstating Peter and assuring Peter he was not done with Peter yet. That Peter had a lifetime of ministry, a short lifetime compared to John, but a lifetime of ministry ahead. That his sin did not disqualify him. His sin humbled him. Remember, That famous quote, I hope it's precious in your mind, uh, from Thomas Watson, who said, better is the sin that humbles you than the duty that makes you proud, than the obedience that makes you proud. 
I love that. Because I don't know about you, but my repeated sin has humbled me, humbled me, humbled me. And Peter needed to be humbled. Peter who said, Lord, you may say that all are going to fall away, but not me. I will die for you. And Jesus says, oh yeah? Before the cock crows this morning, you will have denied me three times. And he did. He did. Peter is humbled now, and God is ready to use him in extraordinary ways. The other observation that leads us to believe Jesus is restoring Peter comes from how Jesus responds to each of Peter's answers to the question, do you love me? Each time, Jesus responds with words like this, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my... The third time he does this, by the way, in the Greek, it kind of comes across as, feed my dear sheep, my precious sheep. They are mine. I love them, and I entrust them to you. The essence of apostolic ministry was to feed Christ's sheep. That is, the apostles' primary ministry was the ministry of the Word. It was teaching God's Word, explaining God's Word. That's why you find in Acts When Peter stands up to preach, he's expounding on Old Testament texts. There was no New Testament. The Word of God was Genesis through Malachi. And they were probably using the one that was translated into Greek, the Septuagint. They preached the Word. They counseled the Word. They ministered the Word. And that's why in the book of Acts, when the first serious conflict arose that might split this fledgling church, it had barely started, the 12 apostles brought the congregation together and said in Acts 6, 2 through 4, it is not desirable for us, the apostles, not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among yourselves seven men whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the what? The ministry of the word. Now, isn't that interesting? A really big crisis. And yet, you guys handle that. You guys handle it. We trust you but we will minister the word of God. We will minister the word of God. Likewise, in our day, the primary ministry of the elders of every congregation is the ministry of the word of God. We're charged with the responsibility to feed Christ's sheep. Pastors, elders are nothing but under-shepherds who serve at the pleasure of the chief shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus to feed and take care of his sheep by, primarily, the ministry of the word. We have three basic responsibilities. Feed the sheep, lead the sheep, protect the sheep. And we do that by the ministry of the word. And beyond that, we are to know the sheep. But our three primary responsibilities, feed the sheep, lead the sheep, protect the sheep. And we do it by the word of God. That's what God has called us to do. And that's what Jesus was telling Peter. Feed my sheep. Take care of my people. Sometimes as we're ministering to people in the community and they come to us and they've got problems and I always ask, you have a church? Are Are your elders, your pastors, are they shepherding you? 
And um, if they answer no, uh, this may sound like sheep stealing, and it's, it's not. But what I tell them is, if, you're, if, you're, if you are not being shepherded by your elders, then you need to find a place where the elders will shepherd you. It doesn't have to be here, but it needs to be somewhere because your pastors are being derelict in their duty. Um, here at Calvary Bible Church, all of this means we preach the word, we teach the word, we read the word, we sing the word, we counsel the word, we pray the word, right? We use scripture. Scripture saturates everything. Why? Because this is how God's people are nourished. We don't want God's people to be starving for the word of the Lord. In the Old Testament, it talks about there coming a day when there will be a famine for hearing the word of the Lord. And more and more in America, that's true. It's already happened in England and other places. But more and more in America, it's the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word is being replaced by vague, shallow spirituality that makes people think that they're right with God, that they know God, and they know his word, when in reality, they don't. They just know what's happening on Christian radio, which isn't good, (laughs) if that's all you're getting. You're starving. If, If you get, I'm getting away from my notes here, but if you get your spiritual nourishment from Christian radio, it's like eating those little rice cakes. You ever eaten a rice cake? I'm telling you what, it's nothing. There's nothing in it. And it's, in terms of spiritual nourishment, it's useless. This is how God's children are fed and enabled to grow strong and healthy. We have to have the ministry of the word. Like a sheep needs green pastures, so we need the pure ministry of the word, as pure as we can get it. Because, you remember, remember what um, Moses said and Jesus quoted when he was being tempted by Satan? He said these words. God has done this so that you will learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How does a child of God live? Do you need food? Yes, but not as much as you need the word of the Lord. Consider this. In the garden, man was created perfect, but not sufficient and not complete. And man needed a wife, but more than that, he needed God's word. And the first thing we find in Genesis after man is created, God comes and starts instructing him. The word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. Warning, promise, blessing. And we need the word of God. So we believe here in this passage, Jesus is publicly restoring Peter to his office in ministry of the word because three times he commands him, feed my sheep, and because he concludes by saying, follow me, follow me. And we see that twice in this passage. Or more precisely, because this is in the present indicative, it is, Peter, keep on following me. 
keep on. You're not done following me. I'm not cutting you off. You keep following me. As you're feeding my sheep, you keep following me. The preacher's primary responsibility is not to get other people to follow the good shepherd. It is to follow the good shepherd himself. And that brings us to this last set of verses in the Gospel of John. And there are two things that we should see here, and it's not a neat, clever package. Um, Two points. Number one, every disciple's calling is unique. And number two, Jesus is worthy of your faith. Now, they sound entirely different, and there is some demarcation between the two, but here John is kind of wrapping up the whole gospel, and he's getting things in at the last minute, as we'll see. So number one, every disciple's calling is unique. You'll remember that at breakfast, 18, verses 18 and 19, Jesus reveals to Peter by what kind of death he would glorify God. Do you see that in verse 19? John says, he said this. Now, what is he saying? Look at verse 18. Jesus, after the breakfast, says this to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John adds this commentary, verse 19, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Now, a little insertion here historically. Every scholar I've ever read on the Gospel of John believes that by this time Peter was already dead. John is just explaining why he died the way he died. He died by crucifixion. Why did he do that? Because Jesus explained beforehand on this date here in John chapter 21 how he was to glorify God. He would die by crucifixion and John is saying, listen, everybody, Peter, tragedy, yes, we lost Peter, but this is how Jesus said he would die. And he finished well. He finished well. Now, after saying this, Jesus concludes one final directive. He he, kind of gives one final directive to Peter, and he says this. uh, The end of verse 19. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to them, he said to him, said to Peter, follow me. Keep following me. And at this point, you imagine Jesus begins walking away, perhaps to disappear just as suddenly as he appeared that morning. He's done. He's, he's, he's done what he came to do. He provided the miraculous catch of fish. He humbled Peter. He restored Peter. He told Peter, keep on following me. We've got a whole lifetime of ministry here left ahead, and now I'm out of here. And he gets up, and he starts walking away, and Peter's like, wait, I have a question. I still have a question. And so we read that in verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So he's following Jesus, and he realizes John's following him. And who is John? Well, Peter tells us, or John, here, John actually is writing this. The one who also had leaned back against him, that is Christ, during the supper and had said, I'm sorry, leaned against Peter and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? You remember that instance where there's Jesus, John, and Peter. So John is leaning against Jesus, 
He's next to Peter. Peter leans back and says, ask him who it is that's going to betray him. And John, all he has to do is lean over. Lord, who is it? John is saying, it's that one whom he refers to himself over and over again in the Gospel of John as the one whom Jesus loved, the one who was closest to Jesus. This is that same one. This is that John. And verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about this man? Okay, you get the connection now. Peter, this is the kind of death you're going to die. He starts walking away. And Peter says, well, what about John? Now there's debate whether he's being snarky. (laughs) Maybe a little rivalry there. A A lot of scholars think that Peter really just had concern for his brother. And, and was saying, wait, does he have to die that way too? We don't know, but Jesus' answer is clear. Um, Jesus says to him, verse 22, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You, and you is emphatic here, you keep on following me. Keep on following me. Um, if, I think if we were to render Jesus' final statement to Peter in modern English, it might read like this. Peter, my plan for John is none of your beeswax. <laughs> it's none of your business. You just follow me. You worry about following me. I'll take care of John. He has to follow me too, but you focus on your walk. You haven't done so good lately. (laughs) Okay, that's... You see, God had a specific plan for Peter's life, but he had a different plan for John's life. Peter is called to a life of pastoral ministry and martyrdom. John is called to a life of pastoral ministry and writing books. Peter's life would be relatively short. John would be the last of the apostles, best we can tell, last of the apostles to die. Long life, writing books. What a life. And so it is with us, beloved. Our lives are not merely about living our three score and ten. We were not put here merely to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. No, each of us is here for a purpose. You are here for a purpose. And think about this. Here's the entire gospel of John. Jesus is saying, I've come to give you eternal life. 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 I've come to pay for your eternal life. He dies on the cross. It is finished. He rises again. Eternal life is paid for. Now what are we going to talk about? Let's talk about ministry. Not going to spend a lot of time on that, but let's throw in a final chapter here. This is speaking to us. It's speaking to us who know the Lord, who've already believed, who have been changed. We have a calling to fulfill. There are things God wants you specifically to do in this life. There are people who need to be spoken to. There is evil that must be curtailed. There are children, perhaps in your own home, and friends and family and 
and, and, and co-workers who need to hear the gospel. Why are you here? We are left on earth to show the world what Christ is like. We are left here to show the world what the gospel is like. We are left here. We're made in God's image to show the world what God is like. How are you doing that? How do you intend to do that? How do you think God is right now giving you opportunity to do that? Beloved, that's why you're here, regardless of whether you're a housewife, regardless of whether you work for Lockheed Martin or one of the defense industries, or whether you're a street sweeper. God has called you to reflect his glory in this world and live as a witness for Christ. You say, are you saying I have to be an evangelist? Not necessarily. A witness is simply one who says what he has seen and heard. What have you seen and heard about Jesus? What has he done in your life? How has he changed you? What is your testimony? At the very least, what is your testimony? It's amazing when you read the Apostle Paul and his uh, uh, sharing the gospel, sharing or preaching the gospel, so often it was his testimony. You see him before Agrippa, before Felix, before others. He shares what God does. He's He tells people what God did in his life and what he has learned. And God uses that. And does that mean explicit witness in terms of sharing the gospel? Yes. Eventually you have to speak. The the, uh, Great Commission is not go therefore into all the world and be nice. It's go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. More than that, that's Mark's version. In Matthew's version, it's make disciples. You're not just proclaiming the gospel. If all you're doing is proclaiming and you're not involved in people's lives, you are not fulfilling the Great Commission. That's why we're so passionate around here about being involved in one another's lives. And if you're visiting with us today, if you come back, get ready. Because people are going to ask you questions. They want to help you grow. They want to help you change. And you're going to love that if you're God's sheep. I didn't say you better love that. I said you're going to love that. Because God's people do. Beloved, this this is who we are. God has called us. But my calling is different than your calling. My specific calling in my life different than your calling. I know that. There's a visual of that right here in this room because <laughs> I'm here and you're there, right? This is my calling. Some people, a few men, God calls into public ministry. And everyone else is called into various other kinds of ministry. My ministry is not necessarily any more significant than your ministry if you're being faithful. And you know what? Just The pulpit does not make me a faithful preacher of God's word. Or the pulpit standing on this platform doesn't endear me to God any more than whatever your calling is. In fact, that's easily demonstrated by the reality that most pulpits, even in this city, are inhabited by men who don't even believe the Bible. It's always a matter of the heart. Sin and righteousness are always a matter of the heart. Some of you will be called into some kind of public ministry, no doubt. Others will be called to serve in more private ways. Some will glorify God powerfully through their God-ordained suffering. Think right now, Sandy Bagwell. 
Ruth Brown, others. You want to be encouraged? Go visit those dear women who are just lying in bed waiting for somebody to visit them. And you're going to think, oh, I'm going to go and encourage them. And you're going to come back and say, I'm not even sure I know the Lord. <laughs> because in the midst of their suffering, they're loving Christ and they love his word. Um, your calling will be different than my calling, but yours will be just as significant in the, in the eyes of God as mine. I think Jesus is telling people, Peter, be content with your own calling and leave that of others to him. We know what he's doing. We know what he's, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing in each person's life, and he can govern it better than you. Tomorrow, when we get on that airplane, I'm going to be getting on board with uh, a dear friend, Eric Mock, and I introduced him when he was here. Uh, I said, uh, you know, different guys are different talent guys, right? There's one talent guy, there's three talent guys, and there's five talent guys. I'm kind of a one talent guy. He's kind of a five talent guy. And I can't go to Eric and say, Eric, listen, brother, you shouldn't be doing so much. You shouldn't have a job and a church and you know, all the stuff you're doing. Because you know what? I couldn't do that. I just couldn't do it. But he would, he would explain to you, you don't understand, this is, this is my calling. I've got to keep it in balance, and sometimes I get it wrong, but this is what God has called me and empowered me and gifted me to do, and by golly, I'm going to do it. And he can't look at me and say, hey, bro, you're not doing enough. I feel like I'm doing everything I can. And this is my calling. I'm here at this church. He's in Ukraine and somewhere else. I mean, you know, at least once a month. I'm like an every other year guy. Take me every other year. Why? Because this is my calling. It's here. I have different circumstances. And God has laid, me, laid before me different things. I think Jesus is telling Peter, listen, be content with your own calling. Your calling is to feed my sheep and to die as a martyr. And you will die faithfully, praise God. And John, if John is to live until I return, that is none of your business. It's none of your business. You might ask, how do I know my calling? Well, God certainly isn't going to write it in the sky for you. He will lead you into his will for your life day by day, the same way as he leads all of us. And the same way he mostly led Peter. And some people think that God the Holy Spirit spoke to the disciples every day. And the reality is that wasn't the case. It was rare for them to receive actual revelation from God. From day to day, they had to do it like we do it. You bring the word of God to bear on your life, you pray, you figure out what might be pleasing to the Lord as best you can. You step out and you go. The prescription is simply this. Follow me. Follow me. Or keep on following me. In other words, just focus on the simplicity of being the next decision no matter what. You want to find God's will for your life? You want to find your calling? Here's your calling. Be faithful with the next decision whatever that is. If you believe it would be pleasing to the Lord for you to speak, then speak. If you think it would be more pleasing for, uh, be, to the Lord for you to keep your mouth shut, then keep your mouth shut. 
Don't make excuses. Just do what you believe God would have you do in the next moment. Maybe you need comfort. Um, God will send someone to comfort you, but listen, maybe God is calling you to comfort someone else. Perhaps you have the opportunity to encourage or help someone, even in your own hurt. Maybe you believe the Lord will be pleased with you pursuing further education or early retirement is something maybe that God wants you to do to free you up for further ministry. I praise God for the retired men in this congregation who would tell you that they are right now experiencing the most spiritually fruitful years of their life because they're not encumbered by a job anymore. Just seek to be faithful in the next decision. The Lord will lead you if you're faithful. The Lord will guide you, and you will find yourself being given opportunity to do things you never thought you would do. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up in due season, right? How do you know what faithfulness will look like in the next decision? That's a good question. Well, is there a command to obey? That's a good question to ask. Is there a command to obey? Is there a biblical pattern to follow? Is there a sin to flee or warn someone about? Is there a sacrifice to be made? Is there a gift to be given? Is there a strategy to plan? Beloved, let the Bible be your guide and ask for biblical counsel when you're confused and then rest in the reality that the sovereign Savior is leading you exactly where he wants you to be. And don't ever look back. Just follow, just follow. Every disciple's calling is unique and you have a unique calling. You say, I can't see the end of my life. I can't see the whole thing from here. Neither can I. And God is not going to write it in the sky, and God's not going to speak in your ear. He wants you to be faithful with the next decision. Peter, keep on following me. And don't worry about John. I'll take care of him. Next, we find kind of a parenthetical note in verse 23 here. Look at verse 23. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple, speaking of John, was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it, my, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Now, why did John put that in there? Apparently some of the brothers... And maybe those who had gathered around John. Tradition says he became the pastor at the church in Ephesus. And there were a lot of people who were following him, disciples of John who, were, who was a disciple of Christ. And John had, uh, apparently these brothers had heard that the discussion between Jesus and Peter, the part of it that included that Jesus was, um, Jesus told Peter that uh, if it was, if it was his will for John to live until he comes. And so his, the brothers were saying, well, see, John's not going to die until Jesus' return. But that's not at all what Jesus was saying. John wanted to clear this up, probably for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, uh, and, and probably this ties them both up, he didn't want to die without an explanation that, it, that um, 
of what Jesus actually meant by what he said. Otherwise, the disciples might think, oh no, maybe the Lord's word isn't trustworthy. And he probably wrote this, on the other hand, before he died, obviously, to communicate the Lord's word is always true. And the fact that you may misunderstand what he says has no bearing on the truthfulness of Jesus. John is seizing the opportunity to correct this mistaken idea. One day Jesus will return and he will make all things new. And I find it particularly interesting that here at the very end of the gospel, John has Jesus, records Jesus talking about his return. And that's beautiful because it's the believer's hope. After Jesus left, I'm waiting for his return. That's our great hope. Now finally, and this ties right in with what, Jesus, what John was just doing. John was trying to preserve the veracity of Jesus' word, right? You misunderstand. That's not what he said. When I die, don't think that Jesus was saying I was never going to die because that's not what he meant. What he meant was, Peter, mind your own business. It had nothing to do with whether I was going to die or not die or when I was going to die. It's just, Peter, mind your own business. I'll take care of John. I'm preserving the word of Jesus. Now, next section. And this is point two, if you're following along. Jesus is worthy of your faith. Jesus is worthy of your faith. Look at verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them were to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And these final words are designed to solidify our confidence in the message of the Gospel of John and the message of Jesus. It seems, it seems to me that John is saying, I wrote this Gospel and I testify that everything I said here is true. Everything that you read in this book is true. You would do well to put your faith, complete faith in Jesus. He is worthy of your faith. It's very similar, by the way, to what John said in chapter 19, verse 35, where we read, and you can just flip back like one page, two pages, John 19, 35, where John writes these words, he who saw it, meaning himself, has borne witness, his testimony is true, he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. On the other hand, we need to be careful not to miss the pronouns here. This is, this is kind of interesting. This is where the, the details, you gotta, you gotta kind of catch the details here. Uh, but not stumble over them. Verse 24, we find we, and in verse 25, it's I. And previous to that, it was written in the first person. First person, second person, first person. So, 
we have to ask, who is the we? And notice verse 24. This is the disciple who bears witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And some will say, this is the rhetorical we. It's the humble we. And you, sometimes preacher will say, we just want you to come to the picnic this afternoon. And we just want you to come over to our house. And, and I wanted to say, how many of you were in there? <laughs> um, so is it the rhetorical we, or is it something else? Now, I'll tell you the answer to that question is we don't know. But it's interesting, a lot of scholars say, at this time he was at Ephesus, and his elders are inserting a little script in here, saying, we also bear witness. We also bear witness. Now, with that in mind, let's read that verse again. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Could it be that what we find here is not only John saying, my testimony is true, but the elders at Ephesus saying, we also say that his testimony is true. Believe it. Believe it. Respond to Jesus as you find you should respond according to this gospel. What is the witness of this gospel that you should believe? It is this. Even though that it were, was uh, selective, very selective, right? And we get a hint of that in verse 25. Now, there were many other things that Jesus did. Um, John is saying, what I have written here is not exhaustive, but it is sufficient. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written if we had written everything that Jesus did. But this is sufficient. This is a sufficient witness of the life and ministry, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is that gospel? What is that witness? It is that Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh. He is God who became a man in order to save men and women and boys and girls from the just penalty of their sin. He was sent by the Father to heal the sick and raise the dead. He confounded the so-called wisdom of the religious hypocrites of his day so that God's simple message of salvation by grace could be heard and received. He demonstrated that all the prophecies of the Old Testament law and the prophets and, were about the Messiah. He explained how they pointed forward to the Messiah and are fulfilled in himself. He described his own death before it ever happened and promised that he would rise again in three days and it all happened exactly as he said. And John tells us why he put all of this together as he did. Look at chapter 20, verse 30. Chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. He's saying there are witnesses too, which are not written in this book. There he goes again. Verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name and all along the way, he kept inviting men to receive this salvation. 
in chapter 1, in chapter 8, in chapter 10, in chapter 21, he says, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. In chapter 5, 6, and 7, he says, come to me, come to me, come to me. In chapter 6, 7, 11, 14, he says, believe me, believe in me, believe in me. In chapter 6 and chapter 15, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. In chapter 8 and 14 and, and 16 and 21, love me, love me. If God were your father, you would love me. In chapter 10 and 14, know me. This is eternal life, he will say in 17, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Know me. I've not come to hide the Father from you. I've not come to hide myself from you. I'm not hard to discover. Know me. I open myself to you. In chapter 12, serve me. Chapter 13, receive me. And beloved, as I work through that this week, just digging in John, I had to delete far more than I included here. Jesus, invitation, 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 invitation. Come, serve, abide, trust, believe, know. But in it all, it was all Jesus offering eternal life. And let me just give you a sample. I really wanted to do an overview of the whole book. And I know we wouldn't make the picnic if we did. <laughs> John 1, 11 and 12, John says, He came into the world and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. In chapter 3, Jesus declares, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, speaking of his cross, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. To the woman at the well, Jesus said, whoever drinks the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. This is a woman who was engaging in sexual sin, thinking she would find life there. In chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. In chapter 6, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. In chapter 6, verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of what? Eternal life. You see a common theme here? In chapter 11, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me 
will never die. I say that to my mother as many times as I can. She's in the hospital right now. Mom, you know Jesus. You're never going to die. And one of these days you're going to wake up in his arms, but you'll never die. How do I know that? Because of the gospel of John. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's the question. Do you believe this? In chapter 14, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here's the negative side. No man comes to the Father except through me. What did he just do? He excluded every other religion. That's exclusivism. That's not politically correct. And then John makes his purpose clear in the verses we just read. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have, what? Life in his name. Beloved, this is what the Gospel of John is all about. And the only question that remains is this. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And you say, intellectually, I believe that. Yes, but do you love him? Has that belief been translated into a life devotion to him? Do you hate your sin? Do you love his word? My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. My sheep. Do you know him? I plead with you this morning not to allow this day to end without running to the cross and finding in Jesus Christ reconciliation with holy God, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life in his name. Well, this has been a rich and wonderful study, hasn't it? Martin Luther once said of the Gospel of John, should a tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures and only a single copy of the epistle to the Romans and the Gospel of John escape him, Christianity would be saved. <laughs> William Hendrickson wrote this, the Gospel of John is the most amazing book that was ever written by man. When one comes to study it, he hears from on high, put off your shoes, for the place upon which thou standest is holy ground. I love the Gospel of John more than I ever did before we started this study three and a half years ago. And loving it is great, being changed by it, that's the goal. And I pray that we as a church have been changed by this study. That's the goal of theology, right? The goal of theology isn't to feed your mind. I mean, it does that, but it shouldn't stop there. The goal of theology is to change your heart, to cause you to have a greater vision of who God is and a smaller one of who you are. He must increase, John the Baptist said, and I must decrease. 
And the amazing thing is, the lower you go, the more clearly you see. That's what the Gospel of John is about. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this study, and I look forward to the next thing that you have for us as we come back and begin the study of the book of Jude. But, oh, Lord, I just want to give you thanks and praise for this gospel and for the journey you've led us through over these past three and a half years. And, Father, I pray that by your Spirit and the Word, it would bear much fruit in the lives of your people here and that we would be a better church because we have spent time with Jesus in the Gospel of John. Bless us now, Father, as we go and be glorified in us as we seek to live in a manner that's pleasing to you, to repent of any known sin, to pursue Christ, to seek our highest pleasure and enjoyment and glory in knowing him and fellowshipping with him. No, Father, I pray that you would be greatly glorified as we do. For we pray it all in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.